I think a really clear way to say what an invisible illness is like is you look great on the outside, but you just don't feel good inside. It's like you just don't feel good. You know you don't feel good, but you look really good on the outside. And your family, your doctors, your friends say, oh, you look great. You know, you look so good, but you just don't feel good inside. And it makes it harder to convince your practitioner or your family members that there really is something going on. You're not just being lazy. It's not just a bad mood. It's like there's something actually wrong here. And then the other level of invisible illness is that often when you do get to that practitioner and you do run labs, often just the standard labs don't show up anything. So that's more evidence that, oh, your labs are all normal. You look great. You know, come on, honey, get it together. I'm Dr. Seth Osgood, the founder of Grassroots Functional Medicine. After personally struggling for years upon years with chronic health issues that traditional medicine and pharmaceuticals could not resolve, I finally found relief in true healing through a functional medicine approach. Since then, I've dedicated my life to helping patients around the world transform their health by getting to the root cause of symptoms and restoring their body's natural ability to heal. This experience has shown me that a true state of wellness often requires an integrated approach that brings in multiple disciplines and modalities. In this podcast, I will interview a variety of practitioners and health professionals to educate and empower you on the full spectrum of tools that are available to reclaim your health and vitality. If you are struggling with health challenges and you are not getting the answers or results you feel you deserve, or you simply want to optimize your health and take a proactive approach to wellness, this podcast is for you. And if you like this show and find it helpful, be sure to tell a friend, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcast. So let's get started. Welcome to another great episode of the Grassroots Functional Medicine Podcast. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jenny Tefenkian, and we are talking about invisible illness. And this podcast is as exciting as it sounds. Dr. Jenny is a naturopathic physician and functional medicine educator who teaches patients, students, and physicians how to increase their understanding of chronic disease. As she educates, she empowers her audience to instill new perspectives, awareness, and ultimately hope. She sees the potential for a positive domino effect of her work. By guiding others to increase their energy, they in turn have the vitality to live their purpose, to shine their light fully, and benefit all who cross their path. This is an amazing episode, so make sure you stay tuned till the end for lots of clinical pearls. Let's jump in and get started. Well, hi, Dr. Jenny. Thank you so much for joining me on the Grassroots Functional Medicine Podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation, and I just can't wait to dive in and pick your brain. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's just a pleasure to be here. I'm always happy to talk to a like-minded physician and get more of the information out there about how we can be empowered in our own healthcare and do a better job as practitioners taking care of our patients. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I just I really do think that today's talk is going to really hit home for a lot of people who are struggling and uh, you just can't seem to find the, the right solutions or the right practitioners. And I just, I, I'm, I'm just so excited about it. And before, before we jump into this, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your background and really what inspired you to get into, you know, alternative functional medicine. Thanks. That's such a, it's an interesting question because I have to be honest, it actually goes back to when I was a little kid. I had this bizarre fantasy. I honestly don't know where it came from when I was eight years old that I wanted to run away from home and I wanted to run away to Colorado and go live in the woods and find somebody to teach me about how to use herbs as medicine. And, and I like, literally, this was my escape fantasy as a kid. So when the pressure was up in the house or something, you know, like that was my thing. When take my dog, <laughs> I'm going to go run away to Colorado and live in the woods and learn how to use herbs. And from this, I started collecting books on herbs and I started learning about vitamins, even as a sixth grader. And I was wow. making my own homemade whole wheat bread and eating raw vegetables. Like I was a very weird, geeky child. I was... I read some of Linus Pauling's work and was handing out vitamin C to my sixth grader friend, you know, like, take this if you have a sore throat, you know, like totally weird. Like, I don't know where it came from. And then I kind of left, 
I kind of went away from that when I got into college. I, I, I wanted to solve the world's problems. Like all of my papers are about how do I solve the world's problems? And I studied political sociology and I looked at like, you know, do we need to go into education or law or what is it? And I listened to this Native American elder speak and they said, you just pick one thing. You just go into one thing and, and stay in that lane. And that's your good place to do your good work to help. And I realized I'd always wanted to be a physician and I ended up going into medicine. And part of the thing about naturopathic and functional medicine is that this is all about empowering the patient. And this is where it ties into my whole understanding of when I studied political sociology and how when we're disempowered, we don't act necessarily in the best way, but when we're empowered, we act in a much more conscious method. And I find medicine, conventional medicine is often disempowering for the person that's involved in it. And so I believe that when, when we're empowered, we can, we can experience so much more success. Well, that's awesome. And well said, did you ever end up going to Colorado? <laughs> you know, I still, it's like, it's so funny. No, I was just thinking about that. Like I still, it's been almost 50 years and I still need to go find that herbal conference. In That's right. That's a good, good vacation spot. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, I know you are very passionate and, you know, and spend a lot of time working with patients with what you call invisible illness. And I would love for you just to tell us a little bit more about what does this, what does that mean? What does invisible illness mean to you? Can I swear? Of course. (laughs) I think a really clear way to say what an invisible illness is like is you look great on the outside, but you feel like shit inside. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. I think a lot of people can resonate with that. (laughs) Right. You know, it's like you just don't feel good. You know, you don't feel good, but you look really good on the outside and your family, your doctors, your friends say, oh, you look great. You know, you look so good, but you just don't feel good inside. And it makes it harder to convince your practitioner or your family members that you really, there really is something going on. You're not just being lazy. You're not just, you know, it's not just a bad mood. It's like, there's something actually wrong here. And then the other level of invisible illness is that often when you do get to that practitioner and you do run labs, often just the standard labs don't show up anything. So that's more evidence that, oh, your labs are all normal. You look great, you know, Come on, honey, get it together. (laughs) (laughs) So frustrating. It it is. It's really, it is. It's really frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what are, what are some of the, we're in a very label heavy medical society where everybody's got a name for their problem. And and a lot of times when people have what you refer to as invisible illness, they, they still get labels, but yet that doesn't leave them any solution. So what are some of the common labels that you see people receive when they have this going on? Well, I guess that's a good question. So when you're, when you're asking that, do you mean like, what is the almost, what's the appropriate label for it? Or do you do, or how do people get mislabeled? Yeah. Mislabeled is what I'm more afraid of. Like what are inappropriate label? Like what are they told they have that they, they, that's really just like a cop out saying, you know, we just see that a lot where they get diagnosed with different things and it doesn't give them any solutions. It's just like, here's your name. Here you go. You try these meds. Well, super common, super common one for people who go in with invisible illness, especially if they're complaining about being fatigued and having less motivation and they can't get stuff done is like, well, you're probably depressed. Why don't you just go down here to psych and we'll get you on some medications and, and see if that helps you a little bit. That's a really common one. Another one is to be said, well, it sounds like you're just under a lot of stress. And, and I, and there's, there can be there can be some cultural gender issues in here too, because a lot of these, a lot of people with this, there are more tend to be female and culturally women are not necessarily, it's, it's beginning to shift thankfully, but not, are not always believed and kind of told, well, now, 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 honey, <laughs> you're just a little bit stressed out. I actually had the experience when I was going through this, I went, I was having some symptoms that were very concerning and went and see a neuro to see a neurologist. And, um, she actually just said, I just think you need some R&R. I mean, I just think you need a vacation. And here I was a physician 15 years into practice. And I was like, I don't think I just need a vacation. <laughs> like if I needed a vacation, I would have taken one. You know? <laughs> wow. Wow. That's funny. I, I went to a neurologist. I had some issues of my own. I had, you know, uh, some paresthesias and tingling and I actually yeah. tested positive for Lyme, but I went there just to make sure nothing else was going on. 
And they literally, you know what they said? I, I, they said to me, you know what? Sometimes people just think they're feeling numbness and tingling, but it's not really there. <laughs> this was the main specialist at the hospital. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, right. painful, painful. But this is what people experience on a daily basis. I know. And my it's mind. Kind of- it's kind of good for us to be on the other side of the desk at times yeah. to realize how painful that is to be sitting there like, really? You don't believe me? That's, I always tell patients, you know your body better than anybody else. It's like, you know your body. You Absolutely. know what you're experiencing. Yeah. And I love the example of depression. That's just such a huge, yeah, everybody gets that. It's like, yeah, well, now I'm depressed because you're not helping me. You know what I mean? Now I'm totally. feeling like, totally, it's so frustrating. Totally. And another common one that, we, you know, we've all uh, heard of and a lot of people get diagnosed with is, is chronic fatigue syndrome. Do you mind talking? I know that's an area you really put a lot of emphasis on too, yeah. uh, to help them figure out the, the why behind that. But do you mind just telling us a little bit about chronic f- fatigue? What, you know, how do you get that diagnosis? What, what does that mean? Yeah, chronic fatigue syndrome. Chronic fatigue is it is now it's very confusing, and it's confusing for the practitioner as well, because frankly, it's a terrible name for a condition, and we there hasn't been a single etiology or cause yet discovered, and there's not a test to diagnose it. So you really have to fit into a category of symptoms to get the official diagnosis. And here to make it even more confusing, they are three or four different types of categorizing symptoms and no (laughs) single body around the world agrees as to which one you should use. So the CDC has one, there's another one in Canada, there's an international one. It's like, which one do you use? Which then confuses all the research because when you're doing research on chronic fatigue, you don't, if they're not using the same data points, it, the research doesn't, they say, well, the, the data is inconclusive because it's using d- different data points. So it's kind of a mess, to be honest, when we're talking about diagnosis. But as a, as a clinician who treats this and as somebody who's had it, in general, it is somebody who has ongoing unrelenting fatigue that doesn't have a really known cause. You didn't just have a baby. And that's keeping you up, you know, 18 times a night. Uh, You didn't just lose, your spouse didn't just pass away and you're grieving. You know, something that's not really, really obvious as to why you're so tired. And, or you have unpredictable energy levels. So that say you wake up with plenty of energy, but you crash later in the day, or you have energy and then you overdo something and you feel exhausted afterwards, you know, whatever overdoing is for you. So for maybe if you're, you're not feeling super well, overdoing for you is doing an extra load of laundry and the dishes and driving your kid to school, that's overdoing it. And then you're just on the couch for the rest of the day or a couple of days or you're back in bed or overdoing it for you might be, you can do a three or five mile hike, but you go 12 miles and then you're in bed you know, for a couple of days or you're exhausted, you can't do anything else for, you know, a couple of days. So that's post-exertional malaise. And that's, that's a pretty big hallmark for, for people with fatigue. And in the conventional world, how are these people treated? You know, if they get this diagnosis, what, what do they get to help them get better or what, what therapies are they given? Very few. And this is one of, this is one of the reasons I get on my soapbox because this is one of my big frustrations. Actually, I just want to scream when I, because because there are so few um, treatment options really offered to patients with this, whereas I feel like we have so many different ways that we can assess and, and offer treatments to our patients. But what's usually happens in the conventional model, it depends, but usually they're told um, they experiment with pacing, which doesn't usually work because it's not done right. It, you can do pacing in a better way, but the way it's done conventionally doesn't work. Often they are actually tried, antidepressants are tried. There are a few medications. Sometimes some people will be given different stimulants. I've had, I've actually literally had patients who've been told by their physicians, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do for you. You're just going to have to get used to it. Drink more coffee. I've had patients prescribe stimulants to stay awake. I have had patients not just really not be believed. And I've had patients be given antidepressants. And so those are the different things I've seen. What have you seen? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the same deal. I mean, it's, it, it, and I feel like 
What's frustrating to me is that we know, as we will talk about here, that there are actual root causes of right. this problem, but they're not, patients aren't given alternative options. They're told, you know, I mean, here's your medication, you know, essentially if it doesn't work, yeah. oh, well, well, you know, this yeah. is what you got to live with or, or, you know, you're just getting older. Oh, you're, it's just because of menopause. You know I mean? Or, you know I mean? They're just exactly. all, all these BS, it, you know, examples and uh, they have no solutions and now they are depressed and they they're hopeless, <laughs> but you know, they, but it's like, I, I just wish, and I, I hope that more of our, uh, you know, more conventional colleagues would would really just take some time to say, hey, you know what, I, I'm at the end of my rope, you know, I don't have, my toolbox is empty, but he, you know, there's a lot of other options out there you may explore like ABC, you know, but that just yeah. doesn't happen. And that's, that's, we all need to partner together and, and get people, because it, it does take an army, you know, sometimes. Yeah, I'm fully into the whole concept that it takes a village. Yeah. That each one of us, and we all have our different training. And I agree that if your training or the way your practice is run or your, just your passion, your interests, doesn't meet the patient that's sitting in front of you, then that's a really good time to refer them to somebody that does. I do that all the time. Absolutely. One of the things that are just not in my wheelhouse. And I love having great people to refer out to. Absolutely. We all do. Well, well, what are, you know, in your practice, what are some of the root causes of fatigue that, that you see, you know, in the clinic? Yeah. Well, let me just back up and say, yeah. I didn't really share this with you. And I, I, I'm my whole, the whole reason I'm into chronic fatigue is that it was something that I experienced myself. I had, I had a huge dark night of the soul when I was in medical school, I ended up crashing and had severe, um, severe fatigue after a second trimester miscarriage where I hemorrhage and was rushed to the hospital and had been under a lot of stress and ended up getting very, very sick and being in bed for a year with like IVs in my arm. And it was just, I was just out. I was, it was truly dark night of the soul. And I learned so much. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that back. But what happened after I got through what I feel like was the real valuable learning time of that was that I ended up getting chronic fatigue and I, I it just kind of drug through the rest of medical school and into my residency until I finally was able to get better. And then I got 150% better, never thought I'd get sick again. And then I did, I crashed. I had a series of events that led me go down faster than I really thought was possible, which made me realize how vulnerable you are to relapse. Even if you think that you've had it once and you've healed, there's always that potential of relapse. The reason I tell you the story is because when I was first, when I first had this, the, when I was in medical school and I was treating myself, everybody was like, it's all about the adrenals, maybe some toxic stuff. And it truly was treating my adrenals you know, HPA access and getting rid of my heavy metals that really kind of seemed to be really key for me to get through to the chronic fatigue. But when I crashed the second time, those things didn't make a difference. Doing that didn't help. And I knew there had to be more. So I ended up doing a lot of researching. I couldn't sleep. So I was just up like at three o'clock in the morning, PubMed, reading books, ordering books from Europe, like reading whatever I could to try to figure out how I could get better. And that's, and then I had this bizarre experience of so many patients coming my way that who had chronic fatigue, I just ended up having just droves of patients coming my way. And I was able to really begin to figure out that, that there are basically five root causes. This is what I see in my clinic. And I'm gonna be really curious to see what you see, because I know you work with this too. So the pattern that I see is there generally five root causes? And some people have one, two, three, or all five of them, and they all interconnect. They can interconnect as well. And the key is discovering which is sort of the root of the root. Like if you're working with that patient, which, if you could address that one root, might help some of the other ones, or are you going to address two at the same time? So the roots are, are to do with that hormone triangle, right? That one that we see, I call it the gateway route because this is the one when people are really stressed out. It's so easy to go down. So that's the whole HPA, thyroid, ovary, testes kind of hormonal piece. And then there's chronic infections, having chronic infections, mitochondrial dysfunction, toxic overload, and then limbic or mental emotional trauma. I love it. I love it. Yeah. That's yeah. a great. Is that kind of what you do? Oh my gosh, yes, absolutely. What a great way to put it, though. That's it. Just lays it all out there, and I love you know. Again, like you said, there's layers. Sometimes you know, and sometimes you have you have yeah. to figure out which one to address first. And 
it can right. be tricky and it takes time. That's the other thing, right? I mean, these, a lot of these issues, they happen over an extended period of time. And, uh, it, it, but that's where people just need to be consistent and, and stay positive. But that's, that's absolutely right. I, I love it. And so do you mind talking a little bit about, for those who may not be familiar with the HPA access, like what, is, what does that mean? Well, HPA is hypothalamic pituitary access. So we used to call it AKA adrenal fatigue, which is just honestly a lot easier to say <laughs> adrenal fatigue. Right. It really isn't adrenal fatigue. It's really what I would say it is a dysregulated stress response. So it's that you're, that you're, your brain and your endocrine system that responds to stress has gotten either stuck in high alert. And so you're just in this kind of high stress internal espresso state, you know, always looking out, you know, just, just bring And a lot of us kind of like living in there. We like getting a lot of stuff done and we like living in this, like, yeah, I'm jamming, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. But the problem is if you can't get back down to chill, when you're done, that's a problem. Um, and then, or you can get stuck in this place where, where you've been in this high jamming place for so long. And then, it, and then that whole system can just not be able to function properly at all. So you're basically just don't, you're very, very low in terms of your cortisol levels and you just flat out exhausted. Or you can have an altered messed up system so that, you know, you're supposed to have this cortisol and high energy in the morning and sleep at night. It can be flipped, right? So you can end up having this flipped. And, and that's, that's really the hypothalamic pituitary axis piece, but it, it interacts with the thyroid, it interacts with the ovaries. So if you're, if you're a woman, depending on when you're, when you're cycling or what, what stage you are in your fertility can make a huge difference on how this impact, how you feel. You mean everything's connected and related? What a concept, I know, it's right? No, that's awesome. And what, what was the second, the second uh, step or the second cause that you were mentioning? So I'd well, like to go through each one. Yeah, chronic infection. That's a big one. So do you mind talking a little bit about that? Like, what are some of the more chronic infections that you see in your clinic? Long COVID. Yeah, right. That's a big one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I just want to jump in and say that because. There's a lot of discussion out there, you know, long COVID, you know, long COVID, CFS, you know, ME, what is it? In my perspective, just from all the research and all the literature and all the history that I've studied around this condition, which is a lot, I really, I see long COVID as just being another expression of chronic fatigue and ME. Do you as well? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's other things that are in that basket as well. We see that even like with chronic Lyme or some of these tick-borne exactly. illnesses, same it, type of thing. It's like, it, it, there's, there's a lot of similarities between right. these yet, you know, so we have right. to really consider that right. and right. get right. that holistic approach. Yeah. And I've seen a couple of interesting research papers looking at when we look through historically and we've had, we've had an outburst of some kind of infectious agent, there tends to be a, a big uptick of CFS right afterwards. I mean, again, this is a known thing. Happens right. with Ebola, it happens with SARS. You know, it happens with a lot of different infectious things. We just had so many people with COVID around the world that we're seeing right. a lot of people, which I consider to be the second pandemic, to be honest. Yeah, and 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 I find a lot of the exact same principles that I use to to that I teach in my programs and I share with doctors and patients. It's exactly the same thing you do to get out of long COVID in a more efficient way. That's awesome. So, awesome. Yeah. yeah. And so Epstein-Barr virus for sure. And it's interesting yep. to look because what we're seeing with a lot of the people who have long COVID is that they also had a latent EBV that got reactivated when they had the COVID, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. Cytomegalovirus is another really common one. Uh, Parvo-B, I personally haven't seen that a lot in my clinic, but there's a lot of research around it. There are a couple of researchers who are looking into that a lot about a decade ago, looking at Parvo-B as being one of the main etiologic agents of chronic fatigue so absolutely i know we we just had it had a couple of kids come in recently who uh, interestingly enough had like had pan pans or pandas as, as you know when they were younger got covid and now boom they you know all of their symptoms came back so it's just, it's just interesting how it, again that reactivation piece and it makes a lot of sense right when the immune right. system gets hit all that stuff that's just sitting there dormant you know has the potential to show its face again, unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. No kidding. Yeah. And what, what is mitochondria? What, what does that do? Why is that important? 
<laughs> I love the mitochondria. So mitochondria are literally the little powerhouses that are inside of our cells. And the, the more active your cells are, the more mitochondria are in there. And the mitochondria really need to be burning efficiency. Like any power plant, like any car engine, the more efficient it burns, the better energy that thing has. You know, you think about when you used to, you know, if you have a combustion engine car and you get that bad gas and it starts pinging and you don't feel like you can get up the, the hill very well, that's kind of like, that's what it feels like <laughs> if you're driving in your body with bad mitochondria, it's like, oh, so I'm not quite there, you know? So you really need to have your mitochondria functioning optimally to have optimal energy. And they are, they are an amazing little things, but they're also really vulnerable. They have these intercellular membranes that the way that they attract molecules, they attract things that are, they attract things like metals, like lead and mercury, they just go right in there. And then that alters their own self-cleaning production of glutathione. You know, it, it, it messes up with that system. So there's a whole lot that is just around in our world that impacts our mitochondria negatively. They're also mitochondria get hijacked by the virus. So this is where you have that interaction of root causes, right? So if you have, if you have Epstein-Barr virus, it may be, or, or long COVID, it may be that that virus has gotten into the mitochondria and is literally hijacking that energy pathway and sucking off energy. It's like when I was in, when I was in college, excuse me, when I was in college, I was renting this little house this little cottage that had a series of garages next to it. And there was a guy who decided to start living in one of the garages, just kind of, you know, was just squatting in there. And it turns out he was, he was plugging into my electric system. And so it was like training the electricity that I was getting into my house. And it's like <laughs> a little virus. The viruses do that. The little they get into the mitochondria and they just drain the energy right, right out of it. <laughs> That's a great example. <laughs> and so what, so what, how would you know if someone has mitochondrial dysfunction? Are there tests that can be done or is it based on symptoms or is it a combination of both? Yeah, that's a good question. So in terms of testing, I don't think there's a great test for mitochondria function. I don't think there's a really clear specific one. You can look at, you can do an organic, which is a test that's run by some functional medicine labs. People usually have to pay cash out of pocket for that. And that can give you an idea of what's going on with your mitochondria. You can, Dr. Sarah Myhill's out in England and she really specializes in mitochondria function and chronic fatigue. And she had a series of testing that they do over there. I tried to get labs here to, to bring that, to try it out here. And some of the big labs, the researchers were really interested, but they could never get their money people to buy into it. So I think they said, we're not, we may not sell enough of them to make it worth to bring that over there. Right. What I, so what I do, I'm a very practical person. So what I do in clinic is I ask a question and that really helps me determine if there's mitochondria dysfunction. I'd be super curious what you think about this as a practitioner yourself. Because for me, if somebody has post-exertional malaise, then they have mitochondrial dysfunction. Absolutely. That sounds, that's spot on. Yeah. Yeah. Because sure. you're waiting for that ATP to reset and that's what's going on with the malaise. And often people will say it takes me three days to reset and it's 72 hours for that ATP to reset in the mitochondria. Absolutely. It's such a common thing you see too. You know, again, people that other look, they, they could look perfectly healthy or they may have been active, you know, all their life. And now all of a sudden they just can't handle it. Yeah. It, yeah. It's so true. What are you finding are some of the best, best methods to, to overcome mitochondrial dysfunction or tools? Are you using new nutraceuticals or, or is it you're just, again, removing the underlying triggers or just a combination of everything? So, so the main answer is yes. And it, and that, and that's where, that's where it's really patient specific. Yeah. And this is what I'm where, when I'm working with people again, in, in the programs I teach where I, that I have for, for the general public or for the providers, there's, I walk through the different steps. What I like to do with the mitochondria, that I am assessing mitochondria function based on what they're, what they're saying in the clinical history. I also use different protocols as a challenge to see if we can make a difference with the mitochondria. If that helps the mitochondria, 
then we know there was mitochondrial dysfunction. And we also know that we have what I would say is a bridge support, right? Because I mean, to me, to me, the goal is to not be dependent on supplements for the rest of your life, but to use a supplementation protocol to get enough energy to work on the deeper foundations and the deeper root causes so that eventually your body is in a more regulated state. So if we can find a protocol that supports the mitochondria so that they have more energy, that's great. We'll use that for as long as they need it while we're treating the other things. Now, if that protocol fails, and I am still convinced that they have mitochondrial dysfunction, they have the post-exertional delays, my next step is, as a clinician, is to start doing some assessment for toxins, because I find that that's kind of the number one thing. And, and then when you think about toxins, it's like, well, there's so many, like, you, right. you, and, and, I, and it's such a rabbit hole to go down and start testing every single little thing. And we also know that there's no test that gets the full body burden because those little, those little, you know, the pesticides, the herbicides, the metals, they hide, you know, they hide in the fat, they hide in the joints, they hide in the organs. And so the best, so what I do is I do heavy metal testing because I find that again, those metals, that seems to be the most consistent, powerful way that I get the most patients to start feeling better the fastest. Awesome. And, and what kind of testing do you implement? Because I know there's, a, you know, different tests out there. That yeah. Post-provocation. I know. You know. There are all sorts of different yeah. tests. What do you yeah. prefer in your clinic? I do urine testing and I, awesome. usually, I generally do two tests. I usually do one unprovoked and then I do a second provoked if I feel like I need it. The first unprovoked is for two reasons. The main reason is that if somebody already has massive high metals in their system, I want to know because I don't want to give them a chelating agent without binders to be right there with it, right? You know, so if they're already in the red zone with mercury and lead or something else, I don't want to, I don't want to mess with, I don't want to stir that up any more than it's already stirred up. <laughs> that's yeah. my, that's my exactly being yeah. safe zone. So yeah. Awesome. That's exactly what we do too. What are your thoughts on, you know, a lot of patients are going to practitioners that are doing like hair samples. You know, I know there's the, there's another one, the mercury trite test, I think is out there or the, from Quicksilver that people are doing, but I mean, what are your thoughts on hair samples? I, I honestly just don't have much of, uh, experience with them. So I don't recommend them. I just can't wrap my head around it very like I can with the, the uh, urine testing, but are, any thoughts on that or any experience with the hair samples? I'm, I'm with you. So a couple different times throughout my, you know, over 20 years of actually being a practitioner and then like the decades before that, when I, before I had my license, when I was still like looking at this stuff and going to different alternative practitioners, I definitely, you know, I've had hair analysis done on myself multiple times. I've had hair analysis done on my family members. I've had hair and people come in as patients. I used to teach at the naturopathic college and there's a lot of people who come in with their hair analysis. Right. I think that. I don't, I don't want to dismiss it because I don't feel like I understand it well enough, sort of like you to just yeah. dismiss it. But my, I think that my experience has been that it just doesn't, I, I think I just have to say the same thing. I haven't been able to wrap my head around it to see it make a big difference clinically for me. And so I have left that for people who specialize in it. And if there's a practitioner who just does hair analysis and they're really good at what they do, then they're probably really good at what they do. As long as Absolutely. they're seeing the results and their patients are saying, yeah, I'm seeing the results. That makes sense. But I, I haven't, it, it has to perfect. make sense. I mean, I think it's, I think it's more, I think it's hard to test any of these things in the body. Yeah. Again, sure. because they hide. And the thing that's interesting about hair is it's an, it, it sounds weird, but it's an end product. Right? Yeah. I mean, it, and so what are you really testing when it's in the hair? And that's the part I don't really understand. It right. feels like, if I think about it, it feels like that would vary a lot depending on what's going on with that person. And I don't know how to interpret that in terms of what do I do in clinic with you? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. That's my thoughts. Exactly. It, <laughs> okay. It's so true. It's like, you know, how do you know if it's helping? Do you have to wait 
till a certain amount of hair grows back or, you know what I mean? Exactly. That's true. Right, right, right. Because if you're tipping, yeah, it's like. (laughs) It's just hard for me to, I'm sure there's, I know there's people that are utilizing it successfully. I just, like you said, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Now with with metals specifically, what are some of the major sources of metal toxicity? I know you mentioned, you know, lead and mercury being at the top of the list. I mean, what are you finding, you know, where are people getting this from? Well, lead, if you were, Around in the 70s, you know, or earlier, you have lead in you from all the fuel that we were, our cars were burning lead. So those, you know, the the guys in high school that were tearing around in their cars, you know, at lunchtime, were like big plume of smoke and they're burning their tires, you know, or like, well, what was that? You know, that big plume of smoke, that all that stuff. I mean, we're, we're all sucking in lead, lead paint, you know, there's just lead and lots of things that we use to use. And so a lot of us have lead that's in our bones. And as we age, our bodies start breaking down that bone and it starts releasing the lead. So a lot of women who are in their perimenopausal years, very high lead, you know, self-included of just that bones coming out and the lead's coming out with it. Mercury for sure, mercury fillings for sure, dental fillings, the silver fillings with mercury in them. You on the East Coast get a lot more mercury just from the coal that's burned over there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You don't have that as much here. We still got a couple dentists putting in mercury fillings around here. It blows my mind. Uh, Yeah, we still have it here all over the place. It's crazy. I know, it's nuts. And then then arsenic is huge too. And arsenic comes naturally up through people who live in areas where there's more volcanic soil. And there's, and also even from eating rice, you know, from... What's being from the rice patties? Amazing. Now, what's your approach to uh, treating heavy metals? I know it sounds like you've been through that yourself. Are you a fan of IV? Are you a fan of oral? Do you use uh, chelating, natural chelating agents or pharmaceutical chelating agents? What, what's the approach there? Well, this is where, again, I really believe that there's a very individualized approach to our, yeah. to, for everyone. And, and it depends on where people are. So And this is something that, again, I teach people to be, this is where that empowerment piece comes in. So getting to know what does your body, how does your body tend to respond to things and what works for you? And then as a clinician to work with your patients to discover what's going to be the best match for them. Because I really do think there are three roads here. And I share that with my patients. And I share that in in my programs so that people understand there are, I see three distinct roads and it depends. So yeah, IV chelation is definitely an option. I totally refer out. It's not my gig, but I definitely refer out. And if people want that, it has its, I think it it has its place. It has its risks too. And, and, but I leave that, I mean, I kind of put that over there. I think there is the oral chelation method where you can do EDTA or DMSA. I tend to use DMSA. I have a protocol that I do, that I, that again, I share, which is, doing a pulsed, my friends who went way into environmental, my colleagues who've done a lot of the environmental studies have just gone on and on and on. So environmental studies came back and really shared with me that they've discovered that pulsing, that um, those detox phases is actually better than a prolonged state. I don't know if you found this too, but that doing a, I call it a spa weekend, where you do a spa weekend every six weeks or every three months or something like that. And you do some DMSA and your massive saunas and you're doing binders and you just really go for it for a short period of time is a great way to dump a bunch of metals and doing a few of those cycles. I find people really lower their metal level. And then there's the super gentle. The third way is just the super gentle. This is for the patient who is very sensitive or is so sick when so decompensated that their body doesn't have the oomph to really deal with a more intense dump. And this is kind of the more slow day by day. This is what we're doing. And for them, foods, you know, just doing your diet that's binding, using some botanicals, lipoic acid, vitamin C, you know, greens, that kind of thing. And then I might use some homeopathics as well to help just release those toxins that way. So... That's awesome. That's yeah. We're on the same page there. And I, one of the things I just, I want to come back to that you, you mentioned, and I did, I want to touch on, cause I think it's so important is, you know, a lot of what you gather about your patients, it sounds like is based on their story, you know, and I, I just, I, I'm a huge believer in that. I think 
there's, I think we miss so much, or especially in the conventional world, because there's not time there to really do that deep dive and figure yeah. out, you know, what right. that patient's been physically, you know, emotionally, yeah. infectiously, you know, what, what they've been exposed to, what they've, yeah. what stressors they've come into contact with, you know, when these things started, like you, you, that, that takes the place of any test out there. Like that's better than any test is just listening to somebody's story and you, you know, that's when our listeners, I just really encourage them to find someone who will listen to your story because you're going to get more from that than anything in, right. in practice. I'm sure you found the same thing. It's just like, that's where the, the magic happens is when you really, you listen and you, you develop, you know, you can just learn so much from, from just a few, you know, for a good hour conversation. Yeah. History is everything. I really do. And I think that that, I agree that that's the, that is the real power of, of us being practitioners is taking a really good history and knowing what to listen for. And again, this is what I really share when I'm teaching the pro I, I have programs that I teach to physicians. And this is what I share because I think this is what it's easy to lose. It's easy to lose if you're, if your structure, the way that you see patients doesn't allow for that amount of time. But I think there are ways around that in terms of booking more frequent, shorter appointments. But I also think it's something you lose when you're kind of on the verge of burnout yourself as a practitioner or, you know, your schedule's too busy or you forget to go on vacation and all those things. It's <laughs> like, you know, are you in a space where you can really listen and hold your patient and really listen to the nuance of what they're saying? And it's, it's their specific history, like you said, but the other thing that I'm listening for and helps me determine like which way you might do a heavy metal detox is listening to them in terms of, well, what has worked for you in the past and what hasn't? You know, what has been a real problem for you in the past? Because I always say, when people come to me, I say, I have a huge toolkit. I mean, I have a huge toolkit that's wide and deep and keeps growing. And, and there's an, in my toolkit of the things, like there's things that we can do and there's things that you can take and there's all these different, like in my toolkit, but of the things that you can take, there's this spectrum of what I call less energy dense to more energy dense things and pharmaceuticals being the most dense and homeopathy and flower essences being the least dense. And then you kind of go through, you know, there's, you know, herbal tinctures and, you know, essential oils and, you know, and herbs and nutraceuticals and then pharmaceuticals, you know, you kind of have this range. And, and my question is that I'm always asking is what does this person in front of me respond to the best? I remember I had one patient who was all about the homeopathy and pharmaceuticals. Like her body did not respond to the stuff. It just didn't respond to the stuff in the middle. She needed either a big bang or she needed a little fairy dance, you know? <laughs> sure. Sure. So true. Right. So yeah. true. everybody, you know, again, even from the same issue, they can have some of the same problems, but just respond to totally different things. It, it, right. Right. And, things. and as somebody goes through their healing journey, their body may start changing in terms of how it responds. And actually that's one of the keys that, that lets you know that you're healing and it lets the practitioner know that we're in a different place. It's like, oh, look at this. You, you're not responding to this anymore, or you get this reaction or this, you can, we can now do this. Look at this. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, one of the things we gather from stories is just all of the, you know, things that happen in someone's life, especially you know, when they were little, or maybe they, you know, had a traumatic event, you know, yeah. later on in life. How, how does, I know you mentioned this in the beginning, how does sub your subconscious or how does, how do traumatic events affect recovery from invisible illness? <laughs> You're like, I'm like feeling so much joy right now. Just like, yes, talk about this magic thing. Of course we oh, have the to. mind, you know, the subconscious mind. <laughs> yeah. I totally love the subconscious mind and how powerful it is. I always say that the, the, the most powerful pharmacy we have in the world is our own minds. It's that powerful. It's so strong. And when we have traumatic events when we're young, and frankly, a lot of us do, you know, I did, I'm sure, you know, a lot of us yeah. do have a lot of trauma and, or we inherit, gen inherit generational trauma, which I also did as well. And that can add on to the trauma that you've had. The brain starts preferentially 
uh, the subconscious mind starts preferentially filtering towards seeing the world as a less safe place. And you start building and building more narratives and stories around how things are not safe. And that could trigger the limbic brain as well as other parts of the subconscious mind, but can trigger the limbic brain, which can literally affect how the vagus nerve functions and can begin to alter everything downstream with digestion and detoxification. And it, it can become a really big, vicious cycle. Absolutely. I just, oh, I love it. <laughs> it's so nice to have someone that's on the same page talking about the, the vagus nerve. Like nobody talks about the vagus nerve and how essential it is for healing. And, and same with trauma. It's like, I mean, you've, I'm sure you've seen it. It's like people, they'll be taking their supplements, they'll be exercising, they'll be sleeping, they'll be eating the right foods, and they're just not getting to where they need to be. And it's because they haven't addressed that that trauma in their subconscious mind. You know, it's just, we see that all the time with these really well, chronically sick patients. Well, I have to tell you, I mean, personally, I mean, this was a huge thing for me because I, I did a lot of subconscious work. You know, when I, that first time I was sick in bed, like the thing that saved me, the person that saved me, like I had a lot of amazing healers around me, helping me because I was in medical school and they were angels, <laughs> but, but the, per, the, the real lifesaver was this woman who did hypnosis and she came to my house. I couldn't get out of bed. Like she literally came to the end of my bed and sat there and did work with me. And she came twice a week and worked with me for like two hour sessions each time. I mean, like I was, I, I mean, literally people thought I was going to die. Like I was, I was, it was bad. And she worked with me and I healed so much subconscious stuff during that time. That's when I realized the real power of the subconscious mind. And I'd done that work and then I got trained to do work and I did work with patients. I do a lot of subconscious work with my patients in clinic. When I crashed the second time, I was still doing subconscious work on myself. And, but I couldn't figure out what I, I was doing all the right things, like all the right things. And I'd already figured out, I'd already gotten myself better and better and better, but there was still this glass ceiling I couldn't quite break through. And I knew there was another thing I had to do. And I knew what it was. I was just resistant to doing it. And it was the limbic brain work. And so there's, I just have to kind of parse that out because there's the subconscious piece, which I was doing, but that still wasn't the same as doing the limbic work. And just, I just have to be clear about that. <laughs> and the limbic brain does not want to change. So you will be resistant to doing limbic work. <laughs> you have to kind of override it. It's, it's, it's amazing what people can accomplish by just working on their limbic system. I mean, it's, it's, it's great. What, what tools do you typically, I know it sounds like you do a lot of that on your own. Are there uh, places that you outsource people to like, or programs that you utilize in your clinic too, to help people with the limbic yeah, system? Yeah, yeah, I do. So I think the limbic brain, when you're doing limbic work, uh, some people like to work from toning the vagal, doing the vagal tone, like the gargling and, and doing right. the singing and all that kind of stuff and work that way and affect the brain and then other people will like to work on the brain and affect down. I, I find both can be helpful, but I really find the brain down mm -hmm. really seems to shift a lot for patients because you begin to understand some of the patterns that you've been, that you use, have been using in the past. And I, I think Annie Hopper's program is great. DNRS is great. A lot of, I have other people, I did that. That's the program I did. I also think Dr. Gupta's program has helped a lot of people as well. Those are the two that I usually have my patients check out. I think there's a few others out there, but those are the two I have the most experience with. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, both of those, I've just, they've been game changers. So many people, you know, I mean, again, and it's, it's so interesting to see, you know, a lot of people can be doing really well, but that just takes them to a whole nother level oftentimes when they're, when they're yeah. in that. Yeah. 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 And I also think just with this whole relapse piece, if you're somebody that's experienced chronic fatigue or, or ME or long COVID, relapse is always there. And it's easy to live in fear of that relapse, which triggers the limbic brain. So the more you understand how your limbic brain is affecting your health, you can sort of be in, in, those two, in that place of two minds where you're like, I know I need to do these things to take care of myself. And when I start noticing the warning signs that I might be at a risk of relapse, that I go back to my protocols and I start taking care of myself without triggering the limbic brain, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Absolutely. You know? it, was, it was interesting. Just a couple months ago, I don't know if you saw, but there was an article on Medscape. So, you know, again, more of a conventional authority for, for information and they, and it was connecting long COVID with vagal nerve dysfunction. So I was like, oh, 
they're getting it. <laughs> that is so <laughs> it's amazing. Yes. That's what I love. Oh my like, gosh. Yes. They're it tying awesome. it together. It's a beautiful thing. And it's like, so if they're going to look at long COVID like that, it's like, hopefully we'll start to make those connections with all of these other issues that people are yeah. struggling with that are connected to the limbic yeah, yeah, yeah. and then vagal dysfunction. But it was just encouraging to see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, awesome. Well, I know, you know, one of the methods that you use to help people optimize their health is your five-step method called Path to Vitality. Do you mind telling us a little bit about this and how it works? Sure, absolutely. Very happy to. So yeah, Path to Vitality is where I really walk people through these five different steps. And, you know, when I talk about the P2V system, it is five steps. And the first step is assessment, which is really assessing where are you now? Like what's going on? What is, what are your potential root causes? And what are the four health foundations that you need to address? So let me actually say that a little bit differently. There are four health foundations that are the pillars of all good health. And no matter where you are in your health spectrum, having those pillars strong and supported will benefit you. And whatever treatment you're doing, having those pillars strong is going to make that treatment work better. And so I always say, what are, what's the one, maybe two pillars that you really need to support? Like, is it your digestion? Is it your sleep? Is it your mindset? Like, what are the pillars that if you could bolster those would really support the whole system? So there's the health foundations that you need to assess and then your five root causes. So that's the assessment piece. The second step is calibration, which is really where you use your body as your own biofeedback tool and you're experimenting. If you're a practitioner, it's the same thing. You're working with your patient to experiment and see what works with this patient, what doesn't. Maybe you're doing a mitochondria challenge. Maybe you're, you're experimenting, you know, do they, if they are, do they do better with um, valacyclovir or with botanicals to treat Epstein-Barr virus? You know, you're kind of, you're finding out what works. And then step three is that personal toolkit. And this is the part where you, now you know what works. Like as, as if you're suffering from this, you know what's in your kit. You know what you need to do in your day to boost your health. You know how, what you need to eat. You know when you need to go to bed. You know how you need to pace yourself. You know which supplements are going to support you. And you're on your way. Now, some people just like to stop here. They kind of just want to hang out here. It's a much better place to be than usually when they start. Like they know what's going on. They know what to do. They can kind of get through their day and, and they feel much better. But there's another level for those who are brave, which is called deep cognizance. And this is fun when you're ready. And this is where you can go into a deeper level and actually do the deeper work of clearing out the viruses that are stuck in the liver or the thyroid or, you know, what's going on or get that, do that heavy metal detox or whatever, or do that big emotional stuff, you know, work on the stuff that's been there with that trigger that you had from your mom or your dad or your kid, you know, your sibling or whatever it was, do that deeper work. And then the fifth level is super cool, which is where you, once you've done all this work, you're ready for a change. You're ready to really change how you are in the world, how you are in your body. It's like kind of coming back to who you really are, but in a whole different way. And I call that re power presence. And I see this when people go through the process where they start out, I'm sick, I'm overwhelmed. Nobody's been able to help me for decades. I'm just stuck here. And then they go through the full process. And at the end, it's like, wow, I never realized how much I wanted to be an artist or a musician or I'm going to go back to school and study medicine. Or, you know, I got into this new relationship that I never thought I could be in a relationship like this. You know what I mean? Like, it's just this, whoa, like, you know, like <laughs> sick victim to, whoa, <laughs> amazing, Beautiful. you know? Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I love how the thought you put into that. And I mean, it just makes so much sense. Yeah. It's great. I know if, if there are clinicians listening to the podcast, you know, what advice would you give them to help patients recover from invisible illness? What, what would you suggest, you know, to them to help them help more people essentially? Well, well I, I expect if they're here, they already are already at the place of, you know, believe them, you know, listen to them, believe them. <laughs> I really think the number one thing is getting clear in your mind about the assessment, where they are, getting really clear, you know, what are, I think it's easy to feel overwhelmed 
when you're hearing somebody with their long litany of symptoms and what's going on with them. And it sort of feels like a lot, you know, it's like, okay, well, how, where do I start? You know, what do I do? Which is where I think it's really helpful to get that clarity of like, okay, which health foundation, if there was one health foundation, what would we focus on first? If there was which root cause or causes do I feel like is really working on this patient? I think that those, that's that kind of clarity of thinking is very helpful. And this is really important is being willing to take that step back and realize this is a journey and this is going to take time. And like any journey, it's not a straight, it's not a straight line. It's an up and across and down and dip and up and here and here. And there are specific things that are happening in each one of those plateaus and dips that you as a practitioner can know, understand, come to understand how to hold your patient in that place. I believe that we can offer our patients immense hope because there are, there are people who have gone this way before. This is not an unknown territory. Mm -hmm. We have many, many patients that we can give stories to where we have seen them move through to a higher level of health. And it's really being willing to do that journey. So I believe that we can invite our patients to use different, different therapies so that that journey can be as efficient and short as possible, but still understanding that it's going to be a journey. Absolutely. And not, yeah, I love that. The hope then, you know, optimism and hope, I think those are the two most important things for people yeah. to hold on to because, and it's, it's hard to do that when you're, you're struggling with all of these issues, but you know, it, it, there's always a reason, you know, and, and that's what we have to try to figure out is, you know, what is right. driving that? So. Right. Right. Yeah. And I'm all exactly. You know, I'm always like, don't give up, just keep knocking on doors, knock on right. doors until you figure it out. And I, and I feel that for the patient and the practitioner, you know, for the practitioner, it's having that curious detective mind mm -hmm. of like, okay, gosh, this isn't, you know, what is it? You know, what, what's underneath that thing? How come this isn't working the way I thought it might, or it's not going as fast? Is there something else to be done here? Or is it just that the body needs a little bit of time to do the healing work. And I'm the one that's being impatient. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> sure. We've all been there. Well, great. Well, do you mind just sharing a story of someone who was struggling with invisible illness and what their journey looked like working with you just so our sure. listeners can really connect with the, what's possible? Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because one of the people that comes to mind is actually somebody who came to me First, she brought her child to me. It's interesting that you talked about this kid with this reactivated pans after he had COVID because this child was, I think he was four, when three or four, maybe, yeah, we're on them when he first came to see me and very high, high needs, had a lot of constant headaches every single day, a lot of behavior issues that other people judged and, you know, felt like, and this mom was just so patient with, like, I was so impressed with this mom, just so patient with her kid. Very interesting because I started, this child had, was seeing lots of really great practitioners, but um, I started to be highly suspicious that he actually had a viral infection and we treated him as if he had a viral infection. He got better wow. and it was pretty amazing. I also sent him to a really great homeopath who did a great intake on him and that also helped. So, you know, I'm not saying it was just, it was just what I did, but it was but I just want to plant that in there for parents or for practitioners where sometimes it's another thing. And I think these kids sometimes who have quote unquote behavior issues, their nerves are irritated because they've got some sort of a viral infection in their nervous system. So that was huge. Anyway, I could tell how tired she was. I didn't say anything, but soon enough, she comes in herself and she's like, I'm exhausted. I'm like, I bet you are. There's <laughs> just like two kids and all this stuff going on. She worked full time as a practitioner herself. And she was so tired that after work, she'd be home with her kids and she was lying on the floor while she was cooking dinner to rest. Like the pasta would be boiling and she'd be on the floor resting with her kids playing on top of her while she was making dinner. Like she was just so exhausted. She also had headaches every day, all the irritable bowel stuff, insomnia. I mean, it was just, everything was piling on, you know, menstrual stuff, all of it was coming on amazing person, really not doing well. She'd given everything to everybody else, like all of her clients, her family, her kid, like everything. She was just like classic working mom with, with kids that needed her. Oh. So she came in and we, and 
I, I just went through the steps with her. We did the assessment, started, did a big, huge history, took her labs and, you know, was really listening to what she was saying. And it was very clear she had three or four of the five root causes that were pretty significant for her. The labs confirmed she had activated Epstein-Barr virus. She had some mitochondria dysfunction, not a lot, but definitely Epstein-Barr virus stuff. It was very clear to me that she was not going to be able to get well with the life that she had. She didn't have enough space for herself to even prepare enough food for herself, let alone do everything her body needed her to do to, to, to rest. So I put her on FMLA leave. I had her take, I also can't remember if we started with eight or 12 weeks, but I know she didn't do more than three months total. I think we started with six to eight weeks and then I think we extended it and then she went back. So we did that and she, when I have my patients do that, I have them create a wellness plan. So they're not just sitting around. Right. They actually are focused on getting well. And she was very good about doing everything and ran her through all the protocols. And she was able to go back to work first. She went back with a slightly reduced schedule and then she was back to full time. And she was back to being able to exercise without any having an exertional malaise afterwards. And she was, you know, and the biggest thing was that she said, I have my sparkle back. You know, she's like, Aww. that's what she wanted was to have her sparkle back. She's like, I have my sparkle back. And that was all within um, six months that we moved from, yeah, you know, and so wow. she went from like not functioning to really functioning very normally and doing great at six months. And this is where she was sort of at that, how she had her toolkit. She knew what to do. She's supplementing. She was eating. She was doing all this stuff. She... She needed to, she wanted to go further and she had a sense that she might have Lyme and she had denied testing prior and still didn't want to get tested, but pretty, had a pretty good, strong sense that that's what was going on with her. And so I gave her the option of going ahead and do treatment, even though we didn't test and, and that made a huge difference. And so then of course she went through the deeper thing of you've cleaned the house, but now you're going in the closet and now you pull everything out of the closet and your house looks like a mess again. So she started to herx and do all that. But the real key was that because she was so much stronger, because we'd done all that other work, she could handle the herks yeah. and still work. She knew how she knew her body so well. She had that toolkit in place that she could just pace her treatments and she could go deep and she could pull back. And I hardly, honestly, I mean, I didn't even need to micromanage this. Like she kind of knew what to do. And then she started doing some other protocols and started dumping parasites and <laughs> just kind of did all this let go. Work, right <laughs> yeah you know and so no. that process was probably another year you know yeah. on top of that but sure, but sure. but you, that so that's that you know that's, that's awesome that's so i mean and that's don't you love what we do though i mean i know it can be overwhelming and, right. and there's never a dull moment but it's so empowering to see people just change their lives and and really we're there to guide them but they're doing the work they're putting in all of this energy and and to see what they come through and the determination they have, it's just, it's, it's so rewarding to be a part of that journey. Yeah. Well, in this, it is rewarding. And, and, but for me, like, what's the real amazing thing is that she's done, she has done all this work and she hardly needs support at this point, you right. know, because she now is empowered to know how to take care of herself in so many situations, which is just makes her feel even stronger, which again, of course, goes to the brain, the subconscious, the limit brain, like, yeah, I'm strong. I, That's right. I got it. I can affect my body and I can do this. And I've uh, been through this and I own it. And then I also really believe in this, the beauty of the domino effect when we can influence a life, like when a parent can be healthy and show, which demonstrate to their children I went from illness to health and this is how you do it. And they just watch mommy, you yeah. know, build, do this. I mean, what a lesson for that family to be able to see that. And then that child just inherently knows that we live in bodies and there are ways that we can support these bodies, you know, when they don't feel well and we can heal and we have that ability within us. That's so true. It, yeah, exactly. There's definitely downstream effects. And we have, we see that all the time, especially with, you know, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned in the beginning how, you know, we see a lot of women, but for some reason, it's like there's so many moms out there who are literally burning the candle on both ends and everybody relies on them. 
it's just amazing what they can do, you know, and then sometimes it just gets to be too much. And, but, but there's, it's never too late, right? You can always, you can always rebound and come back from it. Yeah, there's a real, yeah, exactly. It's very important to take care of yourself if you're in that situation and to, yeah. to, to realize that nobody, nobody can, <laughs> it's that whole classic, you know, you got to put your mask on. You know? Exactly. <laughs> so true. Well, this has been absolutely phenomenal. I just really appreciate your time and, you know, letting me pick your brain about all of the great work you're doing. How, how would patients who are, or people who are listening, how would they get in contact with you if they're interested in, you know, learning more about your programs or becoming a patient? What's the best way to get in touch or to follow you? The best way is, is to go to my website, which is drjennytofankian.com and to check out the website at the state that we're doing this, having this conversation right now on the homepage, I believe is the whole, it's easy for the doctors to find the program. I have a, I have a program for physicians where I walk them through how it is to work, how do it is to assess your patients? What are the treatment options that you can do? What labs to run? It's all tons of research papers in there for you to geek out on and to see where I'm basing all of this from, along with my clinical pearls that come from 20 years of experience, you know, just yeah. like priceless <laughs> clinical Absolutely pearls awesome. in there in terms of what to listen for and the nuances, because that's really where I'm about is like, how do you listen to your patients? So that's there. And then also on there is core vitality program for the, for you, if you're struggling with chronic fatigue yourself or ME, and you want to go through the steps of how it is that you assess and you treat, I go through all the health foundations and the five root causes and how it is that you can converse with your healthcare practitioners so that you can share information with them so that they can be advocates for you on this team. Most of our healthcare practitioners really want to help us. They want to support us. They just don't know how. So I'm really, that program is to help you be able to support yourself, but also to work with your team in a better way. And then if you want to email me or my team, you can email me at drjenny, drjenny at drjennytobinkian.com. Awesome. And I'll make sure I put all that information in the show notes so uh, awesome. everybody will be able to hop right on and, and find you. And I just appreciate all the work that you're doing, you know, not only for our community, but for uh, the profession as well. And uh, it's awesome to hear all the things you've got available. Thank you. It's, I really appreciate that. Thank you. And I, I appreciate yeah. you and what you're doing with this podcast and getting more information out there about functional medicine. It's so important. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And so I love to end with like a good health tip. You know, what would, what would be one thing that you would recommend that everybody could implement to help, you know, take their health to the next level, even if it's just simple. Okay. Yeah. I, I know it's always the hardest question, right? So I do have a thought about that. Oh, I do have to say, I, I meant to say this. I do have a, I wrote, I created a quiz where people can take oh, the cool. quiz and it goes down my algorithm as to which is maybe your primary root cause. So it's kind of fun to take. Yeah. It's, it's, it's on the website. Anyway, what's the one thing that people can do for a health tip? We all know we're supposed to drink water and eat vegetables and move your body and all that kind of stuff. But I think that the thing that is beyond that is it's really taking a moment where you disconnect every single day and it's disconnecting so that you can actually really connect deeper down. You know, it's really allowing yourself to stop and just sink in to what is most true in your being and find that place where you find peace and expansiveness. And sometimes that can just be referred to as remembering to love. And maybe it's remembering to love the one that you, or I would say it is remembering to love the one that you see in the mirror and just allowing yourself to feel that love can be a really nice way to just find that point where you disconnect from all the other stuff, you know, all the right. and the chatter and everything and just come back and connect. Such great advice. Such great advice. Well, thank you so much again. I, I it just has been such a blessing having you on and, uh, you know, I hope to have you on again at some point and talk about some other topic. I'm sure there's a million different things that we could, we could explore. Yeah, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm but, sure there are. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, and we'll chat soon. Sounds good. All right. Thank you. Take care, everyone. 